If you've invested in your business, chances are you've funded future growth potential through leverage and after filling out loan applications and undergoing credit checks. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Welcome to RASC's Australian Business Podcast, a series for entrepreneurs who dare to leave the world in a better place and get paid while we do it. This podcast will make you a better business owner, investor, founder, or entrepreneur. If you want to start a business or already have one, please subscribe to the series or share it with your friends, business partner, or colleagues. And don't forget to consider taking our free business course, which includes heaps of templates for creating business plans, HR documents, employee files, all of my software recommendations, and more. The course is completely free and available via the link in your podcast player. Okay, let's get into the episode. This Australian Business Podcast episode features Wayne Hooper. This podcast and this discussion I had with Wayne first appeared on the Australian Investors Podcast, which is the yellow podcast from Rusk that is our Intermediate to Advanced Investing series. This episode is fantastic for the Australian Business Podcast and for anyone that is interested in running a business. While Wayne's business might sound large with over 100 employees and it is on the stock exchange, it trades under the ticker symbol LBL, the lessons from this episode give you a great insight into running a business over generations. So Wayne's parents, as you'll discover, were kind of the key business figures in this business early on, along with his brother. Over the past 30 years, Wayne and his family have been running this business. And what does it do exactly? As Wayne explains, laser bond sounds like it's quite technical, but at the end of the day, all you need to think of is like big mining equipment. So think of like big wheels and tires or springs or things on a conveyor belt, anything that involves metal. It needs to be repaired or a new product needs to be made. Laser Bond will do that. Laser Bond started from very humble beginnings, which is why even though now it is quite a big business, this is a fantastic insight into what it takes to make a family business survive and grow to over 100 employees. Today, Laser Bond makes millions of dollars in revenue, pays dividends to its shareholders, including Wayne's family, and also is on a journey to record bigger and bigger profits, even outside of Australia. So there's a lot to be learned from someone who's been doing this for 30 years in both a private business and a public business being on the stock exchange. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Wayne Hooper of LaserBond. Wayne, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show. My pleasure. We just had a site tour mm-hmm. um, here in Sydney. I'm up from Victoria. It's it's been it's a lovely day. It's just great to for get a change. out for a change. Yeah, it's been <laughs> raining here now. Melbourne's got it. Yeah, um, it's great to get here and just see what you've built. Um, to talk to Matthew, to hear from the team. It's just a great environment you've built here, and to see what you're doing every day. Not only um, I guess the the journey of the business and you telling the story as we went through, but also. 
I guess, some of the complexities that are involved. Um, we're going to talk today about your journey, the business's journey, where you are today, and how you see the world through the lens of capital allocation, resourcing, and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. And I would encourage anyone who is listening who wants to learn more about LaserBond to go to the website. Uh, there's plenty of photos, visuals, videos there that people can refer to. But if I'm not mistaken, Wayne, I think this would be the first long-form interview you've done. Yeah, sure. It definitely is. So yeah. If okay. I stuff it up, then you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you won't. But this is, um, this is fantastic. It's a real treat for me. And so I think maybe to set the scene, I'll ask you about your background in a moment. But maybe just to set the scene, what does LaserBond do in simple terms? Well, uh, firstly, it's a pleasure and thanks for joining us from Melbourne. I know it's yeah. a big trip for you. I appreciate it. What does LaserBond do? Uh, we're in the in the business of what we generically call surface engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that means is we actually modify the surface properties of wearing components or corroding components so that they actually last longer in service. Uh, it involves both reclamation of those parts that are either worn or corroded as well as manufacturing new parts with advanced surface properties so that they last longer in service. Mm-hmm. So when you think about it, when, when parts wear out, they always wear at the surface. Yeah. You know, so an example, for example, is, you know, your brake disc on your car. You know, they get thinner and thinner and thinner. Right now, we can, we can make brake discs last a really long time, yeah. right? but the economics don't, usually don't stack up. So that's an example from a day-to-day basis. But in industry where equipment uh, wear causes downtime and that that can be a high cost of lost production. Mm -hmm. So our customers are are typically capital-intensive industries that have components that wear out and when they wear out, they've got to stop their equipment, replace them. If we double the time or triple, quadruple the time that those parts last, then we save them money. Mm-hmm. And we make that's our business. Mm. And these are like mission critical components. So we're talking Often, about things yeah. like mine sites with the big trucks that people would have seen yeah. around, yep. rail, railways, those types of things. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So often the downtime, you know, can be tens, if not more, tens of thousands or if not more um, per hour in lost production, yeah. right? So if they can keep the thing running for longer, that makes a big difference to the um, economics of that business. Mm. Uh, one of the questions that what I had when we went through the floor was um, some of these components are huge. You said one of them was six tons. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that get from the customer to you? Generally on a truck. Yeah. Okay. So um, we what we don't do here, we don't overhaul the whole piece of you know the the equipment. Mm-hmm. We repair those major components. Right? Mm-hmm. So we deal with the people that the businesses that that pull them apart. Uh, find that these components are worn, mm-hmm. send them to us to reclaim, uh, as well as if you know our products division is about new parts, right, where we actually manufacture the parts to allow them to replace in service. But the ones that come here for our services division um, come from our customers directly via truck. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's also for our growth, it's important for us to be closer to some of the major customers um, to reduce the, the logistics um, time and cost of, of bringing components to, to our factory. Mm. In some, some processes we can do on site, but that's limited because 
there's a lot of operations that have to go along with, um, usually have to go along with it, like machining operations, that sort of thing. So usually it's done here. Yeah, like uh, for context for people listening, uh, some of these laser machines can be the size of a bus or like a small bus or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And then that, that's not that's only one machine that's on the floor. There are multiple steps that things have to go through. Some of the lasers you can't look at. You're saying, you yeah. know, they if you looked at it with the naked eye, it wouldn't be a good outcome. No, that's right. Yeah. So the wavelength is, you know, the intensity is very high. Um, and it can damage your eyes, but that's we look after that with the, the enclosure and the safety systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, if I'm not mistaken, Wayne, the business started in 1992. That's right. Yeah. And 30 I, years. I happen to be here today with Monique, and um, at lunchtime today, it's 30 years. So the celebration, right? Celebration. The celebration was not till later in the month. Yes. Yeah. No, no, the celebrations today. Celebrations today, but yeah. the actual anniversary the, is... The, the company, HBLF Australia Proprietary Limited, which was a private company that uh, became Laserbond, mm-hmm. it was, um, I think the certificate was the 30th of September, 1992. Okay. We actually started you know, trading in, in October. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Mm. So that would be, be great. It's good to reflect. And, mm. Yeah. Um, before we get to the early, I guess, the origin story of the business which we just briefly mentioned there. What was your background before this? I'm actually an electrical engineer by training. Um, I worked in the um, electrical generation industry for a number of years. Uh, I had a cadetship in that industry when when I went to university, one of the lucky ones, Hmm. Um, and then ended up in manufacturing, high-volume manufacturing, uh, in project management. Truly speaking, I wasn't one of the founders of the company. My family was, yep. um, but I helped them get started. You know, on the on the side in the in the beginning back in 1992. Um, I remember my brother Greg coming along. He was actually in the surface engineering industry himself, working for others, and he came along, knocked on, and saw me at work in my other employment, and showed me a, a sample of tungsten carbide and this new technology called high pressure, high velocity oxy fuel. And he said, this is brilliant. This is, you know, saves wear and, you know, it's a fantastic opportunities. So um, that sort of opened my eyes as well, uh, you know, as my parents. But that's my background, mm-hmm. right? Speaking a bit more, you want to talk yeah. about the, the yeah, company business. and yeah, how yeah. it started? So, you know, Greg, my brother, had the idea. He was uh, he came across this, you know, relatively new tech or new technology uh, in his travels and learning about the industry. And my parents, Rex and Lillian Hooper, were uh, at that time, Lillian was still, mum was still working in the, um, you know, in the school, you know, education industry. My father had retired from a long career in the army uh, and was was actually volunteering doing other work at the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Greg... Both Greg and I, um, you know, we were up to here with mortgages and, yeah, you know, yeah. when interest rates were, you know, the yeah. 17% or whatever they were at the time. And, you know, Greg had this idea to start a business, uh, convinced mum and dad to, to get involved as well. Uh, and so it was with their hard work and financial backing and Greg's ideas and hard work that the company got started in 1992, Late 1992. So um, I joined them in 1994 officially. Yep. Right? So they asked me to come along because they needed an extra hand and uh, could benefit from my expertise as well. Um, so you know, I got involved in the company at that stage. So what was that? What was the business in the early days? What did you, who did you serve? And 
how, what was the, the scale of the business, if we could get a sense of that? Um, okay, so the business from the beginning targeted not just reclamation of worn parts but actually wearing components like the products division type work, like yep. so new parts to actually make them last longer because high-pressure HVLF technology in, in took the thermal spray industry into those applications, right? So other people that were involved in reclamation seemed to be um, focusing on that, just just getting the part back into service rather than making it last longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we specifically targeted the, um, the wear-resistant type coatings that HVLF allowed us to apply. Mm-hmm. Um, and who are our customers? There were people in the uh, building products industry um, making concrete blocks and, and bricks and pump industry for HVLF. Um, you know, so a range of customers. It did take a little while to build that business, right? So, um, you know, my parents, for example, were working full-time in the business. It didn't take a wage for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, they could afford that. Um, Greg and I, of course, with mortgages and little kids, we couldn't really afford that. But, you know, obviously we made a few sacrifices at that time. Mm. Yeah. Um, when we were down on the floor, one of the first things, I think the, a valuable story is the story of the first laser, mm-hmm. um, how that came to be and I guess how you save money <laughs> putting this together. Sure. Okay. So the, the, the business was um, profitable in the first year of operation to a small extent mm-hmm. with my parents not taking any money. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and targeting that, you know, wear resistant, making components last on. But there were certain industries and certain many applications that HVLF is not suitable for. So whilst it can put down very high performance surfaces in terms of wear and corrosion resistance, the bond strength is is quite high, but it's mechanical bond. So in high impact situations, it's not suitable. So we were searching for alternatives to uh, allow us to grow the business into other applications. Uh, and what that involved was actually getting a getting a welded bond, but without the heat input of welding. Right. right? So we can get the very high performance surfaces. Um, and you know, various universities in in Europe, you know, people, researchers had um, developed, you know, done some work in laser cladding. And when we were doing our research on that, we could see that it had some applications. So we thought, well, laser cladding will allow us to grow the applications for our wear and corrosion-resistant coatings. But, um, and we got, thought, well, okay, we need a laser cladding system. How do we do that? And we mm. got some quotes to get some equipment built for us to do laser cladding. Uh, and they were were of the order of, you know, $2 million. The company at the time was only turning over about a million or a bit less, making, you know, know, tens of thousands of dollars of profit. Mm. And frankly, it was, you know, we realised we couldn't really afford to to pay someone to build us a laser. So um, we decided to build our own Mm. um, and use some second-hand equipment, you know, a second-hand gantry robot and... An old lathe for a rotator and synchronize that, uh, right? but we had to replace the control system on on the robot um, and interface that to a new laser, uh, CO2 laser at the time, um, and build the equipment. Uh, 
and that took us a, a few years. We started investigating around 1998 and we commissioned the first machine in, first laser in May 2001. And in terms of the cost of putting that together versus the new, um, yeah. mach- brand new machine, how did that compare? Um, well, the, the laser system, the laser generator itself, it was new. You know, we didn't okay. want to risk you know anything secondhand there, and it's a high power laser that was of the order of uh, six hundred thousand dollars. And then you know, the rest of the equipment we put together, I guess, for a hundred to hundred and fifty. So all up about seven fifty compared to the the two million. Obviously, that was still a risk, but it was enough that we could you know we could um, swallow that at the time. Mm. When did uh, I should know this off the top of my head? But when did the business list on the ASX? 2007, December 2007. Yeah, right. Okay. okay. Yeah, that was an interesting time for markets. It was um, pre-GFC, um, mm. but only just. Yep. Yeah, things were, yeah. <laughs> um, and that was on the back of the, the laser von cladding technology because we were really starting to hit some goals. And again, very, very small company still, but we were, you know, the technology was was new and, and, and we were developing quite a market. Mm. And building your own laser, like you mentioned there, it took a few years. Very, like obviously it's complex. Like I look at something like that and I just I don't, mm-hmm. wouldn't know where to begin, right? Um, but that's now, over many years, it's paid dividends in the sense of the intellectual property, the know-how, um, but also I guess giving you the confidence to solve problems and then also speak to customers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, because it allowed... Uh, well, how do I? Yeah, certainly. What it has allowed us to do is develop a lot of knowledge of the equipment and the best way to get the results. You know, and that that laser you saw it down there. Laser one we call laser one is still operating for us now, mm. um, but it's well and truly paid for itself. Mm. But the the knowledge that we've um, generated over the years on materials and how to apply them to get the best results using our laboratory, which you saw, right? Yep. Um, and you know, uh, even back in the in the HVLF days before we had a laser, we had our own scanning electron microscope in our laboratory, um, and we were investigating the coatings at it that we're applying at a micro, microscopic level to make sure that we're getting the best results. Fine tune the parameters on the on the HVLF gun or on the laser or whatever we're running to get the best results, mm. and proving that to ourselves and our customers. Mm. So there's a lot of um, intellectual property in the business know-how on materials, how to apply them, how to get the best results in each application. Mm. Um, we Obviously, we were very lucky to go through and have a look at everything, but to set the scene, this is a, I don't, I don't know, maybe if it's nearly the size of a soccer field or maybe it's a bit smaller than that. No, it's a bit bigger. I think. Is it a bit bigger than that, right? And oh, it's 5,000 square metres here, 5,400 yeah. here. Yeah. yeah, and this yeah. is the biggest of the sites. Yes, it is, yeah. yeah. You've got sites in Victoria, South Australia and Queensland. That's right. Yep. Yeah, Queensland being the most recent. That's right. Yeah. Um, this is, and this is, I guess, we'll get to that in a minute. And how you think about that? Um, but in terms of the, you mentioned products and services. Can you just break down in this technology as well? How investors typically see the business from, I guess, a commercial perspective. So, um, why you differentiate between, I guess, services and how that is different to products in terms of this? Like we saw down on the. The floor there, we saw big rolls and we saw steel coming in, um, or maybe it wasn't steel. Um, you have to correct me there. But then, you know, we also talked about the the machines that you're making and 
licensing those overseas. Yeah. So maybe if you can just give us a general sense of the different parts of the business. Sure, sure. Um, so you would have seen some large components down there. I think you mentioned before, you know, there was one there that said it was about six tonne. I mean, we we occasionally get 25 tonne uh, right. jobs through here. A lot of jobs that are only, you know, 50 kilos. It depends on, on what we do. Um, so the services division is about reclaiming those worn components as well as making them last longer. So those parts come to us, as we said, blow yep. a truck. Right? Um, so they have to come to us, then they have to be prepared for the laser bond cladding process or if it's thermal spraying, but most yep. of it, a lot of it's laser bond cladding. So it's some pre-machining operations typically. Uh, and then the 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 cladding process which puts down the, the the new surface and then they have to be typically have to be finished. Yeah. Um so and then shipped back to the customer for them to then assemble back into the the piece of equipment. Yep. So it's two way, if you like, with those pieces. Yep. Um timing is often important. Uh, a piece of equipment is out of service, it's costing them a lot of money to to um in down, you know, lost production. They want to get it back into service. Yep. Um, so, you know, we have to turn around those parts relatively quickly. So, being close to the the people that are doing the overhauls that are pulling that helps in that. Right? That's our service division. If whilst we, you know, we do pull work out of North Queensland into New South Wales and out of you know out of WA as well, uh, all over Australia. But it's constrained by that distance, the tyranny of distance and the, mm. the, the time and the cost of doing that, particularly on those large components. For sure. So that's the services division and it's one of the reasons why we need to be in different parts of Australia. Uh, products division, we're actually manufacturing new products uh, from scratch uh, and putting our surface engineering on them and then sending them out as a as a part. Mm -hmm. um, so these parts are generally considered to be consumables, but so they they are thrown away. They're not worth reclaiming because the amount of wear that they get or yep. right, they're typically scrapped. Um, but what we do with our surface engineering is mean, make them last longer in service so that the piece of equipment that they're part of can keep operating for much longer. Just as yeah. a general sense, roughly how long might these Long. Look, it really depends on the industry and, and the type of wear, you know. Um, but typically, you know, we're talking model pools of four to twenty times the life that we get out of our components, depending on the on the wear. So, you know, it, it quite often, you know, the steel industry, some of those steel mill rolls that we do as part of our products division, you know, we've got up to in some applications fifteen times what they're getting out of their original parts. Mm. Right. So it means that they can just keep their mill running for longer. Yeah. Right? That's what it's about. Mm. How about um, so technology, which we can tie into a conversation around R and D. So obviously, your background is uh, engineering, um, and then you know you've got the, the partnerships with universities. Uh, you've got the lab downstairs, which we just took a look at. How do you think about, I guess, the competitive advantage of laser bond, and is, do you think it's in that R and D and? Uh, the constant feedback you're getting and improvement you're making. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, it is. It's 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 that continual development. One one thing about being in Australia as well is that uh, 
the industries are quite diverse and not necessarily that large. So we, we do a work for a whole range of industries. We don't just do, mm. you know, um, stuff for rail, right? Yep. Um, we do work for rail and mining and minerals processing and, and fluid handling industries and agriculture, a whole range of industries. So that's given us a lot of exposure to different things. Also, as a result of that, different materials that we apply to get the best results so we understand those materials well. That know-how is definitely you know, part of our um, competitive advantage, if you like, mm. uh, as well as the equipment itself and how to actually run it, right? So, you know, you can anyone can go and buy a laser, right, and then maybe, you know, or buy, you know, and put together a piece of equipment if, if they like and, and do, you know, they can do it, but do they know the materials and how to actually get the results out of it? Mm. So that's why we've always invested quite uh, significantly in our own R&D because we've always been striving to get the best results out of our materials. You know, and you often say, well, you know, this material might be a lower cost but might do a better job. We try that. Uh, mm. These sort of things we're researching on a day-in, day-out basis. Um, so that that's definitely uh, a competitive advantage. Yeah, I remember we when we were downstairs, we saw this, uh, the before and after photos from... Uh, some of the testing that was done down at Monash Uni. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically you could see the different bonds between the elements and how much uh, improvement there was from yeah. your continual you know, yeah. innovation there. And it was – I was actually taken aback by it. We'll try and get a, a photo. I know there's one in the Prezo that showed something similar. Um, and it was it was just like chalk and cheese really, like the difference between the bonds and the, the surface, mm-hmm. how much stronger it is. And I think – a lot of investors will hear this and probably think, well, from an environmental perspective and a sustainability perspective, this also comes into play because, yeah. you know, this is a big factor for, for mines that are constantly going through these things. Rail, to say 15 times the life is yeah, really exactly. important. You know, in a carbon-constrained world, um, you know, the, the we're, we're about, you know, the circular economy. We make these things first up. You know, make wearing components last longer. We and you know, services division, we're actually reclaiming mm-hmm. those parts, putting them back in service rather than being scrapped. Yeah. So, and we're trying to extend the time between you know when they they actually last longer in service. That's what our aim is. Yeah. People have sometimes said to us, "Well, why do you do that? You want to actually keep these things coming back, right?" Yeah. But our, our philosophy is actually no. We want to actually stay, provide the best result for our customers. Um, so that you know, there'll be other applications, right? We, mm. you know, if we make it last fifteen times longer, they'll say, "Well, what about this? What about that?" That's that's how we grow our business. Right? Mm. How does it, in terms of retaining customers, then, is it, is the, I guess, the feedback positive? Like you've got a lot of returning customers. They come to you once you've got one product through the door. They just hang around. They send you something else. Oh yeah, that's exactly. Well, I mean, that's part of our. You know, our sales team's role is to actually, you know, be making sure that customer is happy, and they, they are, and talking about other things that we can do for them. Um, so that's, you know, the business development. So, you know, in terms of new customers, for example, we typically have about, you know, 5% of our revenue a year is someone that we might consider to be new in that year. But it takes... It takes a little bit. Some can sometimes take a little bit of time, but they build yeah, up, right? Sure. Become they become a large customer. Um, you need so, to convince yeah. them, right? This is a mission critical piece of equipment. Yeah, their trucks down, their rails down. Like they, 
need to trust that you're going to do it. So they'll exactly. start small and then yeah, yeah, buy into it. Yeah, right. and maintenance engineers generally are conservative lot. They don't want to. Yeah. Said, oh, what's it all saying? No one ever got sacked for buying IBM when. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> I'm going true. back yeah. a long time. Yeah, no, I know. no, no, no. <laughs> but you know, um, yeah. it's, it's a bit like that with with engineers. So they need to actually be. Um, the results have to be proven to them sometimes. We can obviously leverage off the success we've had with any of their competitors or, or you know, when it's when it's appropriate. Yep. Um, but it takes a bit of time to build them from customers. But generally speaking, um, you know, the customers, we new customers become long-term customers because of the results we deliver. Mm. And that show, shows up in the financials over mm. time, the compounding. Mm. Um, the, the, the last kind of division is around technology yeah. and licensing. And this is a really interesting uh, part of the business for a lot of investors because we look at it and we say, LaserBond's had all this success in Australia and is still growing in Australia. Um, but this, we're not the only country in the world that manufactures things mm-hmm. and needs reclamation, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess why did you go down this path of licensing and how do you see that part of the business taking shape? Okay, for your first question, why? What we what we realised after building our own laser systems and, and developing that knowledge, that there are applications around the world. And we're saying, well, how do we quickly, more quickly get into uh, markets where we need to, a local presence? Mm-hmm. You know, like I was saying about the services division, um, you know, but, but actually transferring that knowledge and also developing um, the local knowledge of all the customers in the, on those sites, we saw it's going to take a, a while, right? So the, the the best way we thought to roll this out more quickly, our, our know-how, is to license existing players, existing engineering businesses that, that can use our technology to grow their business and pay us a royalty along the way, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's, that's that model. Um, it allows us to be... In other countries, we wouldn't consider being, you know, being in directly ourselves, or we don't have the resources to to be there from a, you know, from a people point of view, or an, a, a local knowledge. Um, so that's the model. Because mm-hmm. um, I noticed here, you know, you're, you're putting the machines together here, um, and then you'll ship them over. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. And then how does that work from a commercial perspective? Do you still own the machine, or is it like you said, royalties? Is it? How does it, how does that kind of economic the, model work? The the model work the customer pays for the machine, mm-hmm. um, and we make you know we make margin on that. Yep. Uh, and it's installed on their site by us. We train them on how to operate. Right. Um, so, and then they pay a royalty fee based on the hours that okay. it's running. Yeah. It's and it makes like a traditional them, model. Yeah, it yeah. makes them competitive yeah. as well as ours. We provide materials that they use, right? Okay. And whilst we're not in the business of actually making the materials, we know we know where to source them and what makes them work, yeah. right? Uh, and we make a small margin on that as well, yeah. right? a smaller margin. Yeah, right? so, yeah. And we see this with uh, other technology businesses and um, even hardware businesses on the ASX as well, uh, businesses that you know, want to get into these types of models because it works for the customer and it works for you. Yeah. Because for them, it's a lesser upfront cost. They can leverage your expertise yeah. and you can develop that relationship together, which makes a lot of sense. How do you think about, uh, I guess, the the expansion here in Australia, which is another thing that people think is really fruitful, right? And obviously you do too. 
we talked about it here in the Sydney site. Um, you can have a, a morning shift and an afternoon shift, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but your, your main acquisition in Victoria, expanded SA, Queensland, maybe other parts of the country in time. How do you think about the difference between buying versus building? So mm-hmm. building your own site, like buying a site, doing it all yourself versus um, I guess just buying a business, a brownfield. Mm-hmm. And I guess some of the challenges that come with that. Yeah. So there's it's interesting. A lot, there's a lot there. So our first so we started here in New South Wales. Yep. Um, you know, so I grew up in this area. Um uh, family. So this is where we started. Um but our first interstate expansion was actually Adelaide, mm-hmm. and it's because we developed yep. a customer down there that wanted us down there. We actually did that one greenfield, so we actually sent down, you know, you know built a laser system, sent down there actually, uh, and we sent some management people down there, um, and we started servicing that customer down there. Um, the and it w- it was successful. It has been very successful. Um, but one of the things about that was a particular customer, which was really products division type work, okay, not, right, not okay. reclamation. So it didn't need the extent of the support infrastructure yeah. uh, and people to run that equipment. So, you know, you saw out there we we run a fairly large machine shop, which involves mm. processing the parts for the services division that come in preparing them for the laser cleaning um, as well as the lasers themselves and then some finished machining operations. So you need all that equipment but you also need people to operate them and know how to operate them. Mm. So uh, South Australia has been very successful but for our services division uh, expansion which requires us can grow a lot stronger if we're nearer to customers. That's why we, you know, we've moved into Victoria as well as uh, Queensland. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done those by buying existing engineering business and then bolting on our technology. Right? Yep. So support infrastructure is there, but importantly, the people that run the equipment are also available. So you know, everyone's saying at the moment, but we've always had a, you know, finding finding skilled machinists has always been an, an issue for the company. Uh, and it's something we do, we address all the time. Mm-hmm. Right? So we want to buy businesses that have already have a successful engineering business that our technology will enhance and help us to grow that business. Mm. Yeah. How about on the, the the culture side of acquisitions? Um, you obviously want to retain those mm-hmm. those people. So are there any mechanisms that you put in place, or even if you don't necessarily have a, an exact answer for that, but more so, how have you been with retaining those? those members to date um on each of those um sites pretty good yep. uh, the retention is is very high um how do we go about it well it's it's you know most the, the two acquisitions you know the more recent ones victoria and, and more recently queensland they were family-owned companies mm-hmm. so a lot of it is about you know letting them know where you know we started as a family company and and this is where we're at, mm-hmm. you know. Sure, some things need to change. We need to put in, you know, ERP systems and, you know, our own and to make sure things. But it's going to continue with the same sort of ethos. Yep. Right? And, in fact, we need you to continue with that because that's successful. Right? Yep. So, um, yeah, you know, I was down in um, Victoria earlier uh, this week mm-hmm. um, and it's all about keeping keep, keeping people informed about what's happening and and you know making sure they know there's a great business that we're growing strongly and they're an important part of it. Mm. Um, so culture is something we're we're continually working on, 
it's always work, room to improve, you know, yeah. but we're getting, you know, we've got a, a good bunch of people. We've got about 130 employees all up now. Mm. Um, and, they're, you know, and they're great. Those are the engineering businesses too. I imagine for some of them it's a liquidity event if they're a family business, you know. They, yeah. They get the cash and they can, oftentimes I'd imagine they can, their employees keep their jobs, right? Yeah, that's and, right. And that's that's really important to them. And maybe even they, you know, their managers keep their jobs, which is really important, right? Yeah, that's right. So you want that continuity. And for you as a larger business, like you said, you could have, if they just do a day shift, a, Victor- a morning shift in Victoria, they might do an afternoon shift. Yeah. You know, might be able to bring in different um, people for that. And then, of course, the like the, the lasers yeah. getting installed, that's a whole new toolkit in their that's arsenal. Right. Yeah. And it makes them more valuable to yeah. customers. Yeah. yeah. So how do you think about investing like resources generally across the business? Um, I know obviously like enviable track record when it comes to dividends, um, like you know, obviously employment's going up because more people are joining the business. I've got, you know, these global ex- expansion with the, the licensing. Uh, you've got, you know, interstate opportunities. I guess I'm just trying to get a general feel of how you and the team here assess the lay of the land and where you should be focusing money. It's a good question. Um, you know, one of one of the things that the you know the company as a profitable private company before it was um, taken public and and being profitable since, you know, we have you know franking credit to sort of keep growing. Um, yep. But our policy, you know, in the beginning, like as a family, we we're always reinvesting in the company. We always have, right? So For it's sure. a matter of balancing that. Um, the dividends work well for our shareholders. We've got some long-term shareholders that are, that are happy with that, but we don't have a high payout ratio, and that's you know we because we need funding for growth. Yep. Um, so capital allocation is always a bit of a you know question. Um, yep. We we've been steadily increasing dividends. Um, you know we're going to if if we just want to pay out cash we can afford to do more than that but we need it you know we want to grow so mm. you know we're funding both at the same time yeah and i think that that has worked for us you know we um we we're not tapping the market for funds all the time we've had i think two capital raises since the listing one was more recent to fund queensland but that's been very successful mm-hmm. uh, we were very pleased with that it also brought in some you know small cap funds that couldn't get any shares that have been interested in the yeah I know a lot a of investors would love to take part yeah <laughs> yeah so uh, I think that's great because that gives us that long term support as well mm-hmm. um, so um, yeah it's finding finding that balance I mean the board always deliberates about that yeah uh, something we discuss day in day out and there's always you know some um, you know discussion mm-hmm. right but that's what it's about you know. Mm-hmm. So, we're just chatting off air before, um, and it's hard to get a sense of this. But um, I think you called it was it a vertical borer? Yeah, it's a gigantic machine um, with a big. I don't even know what you'd call it. Like a boring, like a drill bit that goes into it. Boring bar. Yeah. yeah, that goes into this huge piece of equipment. Yeah, uh, vertically as it spins yes. down. Yeah, and. It's what did you say? Three meters. The foundations are three meters down. Yeah, yeah. And this is a huge piece of equipment, and you just look at it and you think, "Wow!" Mm. You know, from the outside, someone who's not an engineer, and then you say, "You, you know, you managed to pick it up secondhand." And yeah. and I just think that, as you know, people have this kind of perception, I guess, that if you're a publicly listed company, you're profitable, you go in, everything's perfectly shiny, and it's somehow like magical, right? But here you are, still got that family ethos, and I feel like. 
that's really important. You know, I come when I was going through there before, I was thinking, and we know this as investors, we we know that family-run businesses and founder-run businesses outperform typically. And they're not all of that's not always the case. Mm. I want to be clear about that, but typically, right? With the study show outperformance, and you can see it because I can see the passion. I can also see that that mentality mm-hmm. leading through how you think about things. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I guess so. You probably don't think about it now. It's uh, quite a few years into the journey, right? Oh, I'm I'm laughing because some of my some of the people here call me T Rex. They think I've got deep pockets and short arms, right? <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to equipment, but I'm getting better now. Look, it's it's <laughs> that's good. Yeah, oh, it is good. I, I laugh at it too, but um, it's about having the right equipment. And look, we've got. You know, some equipment we do buy new. It's not, but that particular piece of equipment um, was. You know, we we had to buy a high quality piece of equipment. Um, so yeah, we did buy it secondhand, but it's a good, good yeah. bit of gear. So it's near new, right? It's like buying going into the car yard and buying a, a, demo. a car, yeah, a demo or, or <laughs> yeah. a car that's done sixty thousand k's. You know, yeah. you got another, you know, or thirty thousand k's, and you got a lot more to get from it. Yeah. So it's it's that balance, right? And, and every piece of equipment, of course, has to be paid for. It has to be um, depreciated. Right? Sure. Um, we've got good backing from uh, you know for, from our equipment finances, our bank and, and banks. So that's not a problem yeah. um, to raise to um, to buy equipment. Yeah. Our debt levels overall are low. Mm-hmm. The only debt we have is equipment finance, like that. Mm-hmm. So it's a matter of balancing those up. Um, if we couldn't find that piece of equipment secondhand that was in good nick, then we would have had to buy a new one and yep. we would have done it, right? So it's it's those decisions we make on a regular basis. Yeah. Wait, was it um, was it Greg who was CTO? Yes, yep. Yeah. Um, I had a question come through is basically how uh, you think about management responsibility and kind of the next layer of management and leadership in the business. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, as you scale, that tier becomes more important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess what the question this is, a question that came through Twitter, actually, from a friend, uh, he's an analyst, Claude, and uh, he was just interested in kind of that, the planning around the team, how you grow it, how you, and still have that technical kind of underpinning in the business. Sure. Um yeah, the, the 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 next level or the management. We we have a leadership team here, you know. Mm-hmm. And you've met you've met Matt, our C, uh, CFO, and mm-hmm. uh, you know on the on the production side, on you know we've got um, senior managers that report directly to me, and we meet every week as a team. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got HR as well, you know, and um, you know so. As, as well as the, the, our projects division who, who are building the equipment that we need as well as our licensees need. So we, we and our R&D, right? Mm. So we meet every week uh, and it's about each of them working together as a team to develop this business. It's mm. not about me. It's about that team, right? Mm. Um, For sure. And, you know, I'm, so that that next level is, is critical, right? And... You know, I don't know everything that's happening on the factory floor on a day-to-day basis. That's not my role anymore. Mm. It used to be yep. when we were a small family company, but not anymore. Yep. Right. So that's um, bringing those people from within the organisation to to lead it into the future uh, is critical, and we're doing that. 
Yeah, coming, you know, you mentioned the CTO, Greg's, Greg's role. Greg, Greg uh, chose, you know, he wanted to retire. Um, he was in his 60s and said, you know, I've had enough. It's, mm. We've done well and he decided to, to pull out of the business. But it, prior to that happening, it was all planned. He, you know, and we had uh, Thomas Schleifer, uh, uh, Dr. Thomas Schleifer, who was in the surface engineering business in, in Europe, in Germany in particular, uh, came to Australia. We, we employed him. Uh, he actually knocked on our door oh, with right. his partner and said, oh, you know, we'd like to live in Australia. Have you got any roles for us? It happened to be at about the time Greg was thinking about this. We said, well, we really need someone to lead our R&D and uh, that's how it came about. And he's, he's great. He's part of the leadership team now. He runs the R&D area. He's responsible for the KPIs within that area, um, both directly our own R&D as well as um, – the work with our, the, our partners in the universities um, through, you know, the CRCs and, and ARC-funded projects. It helps us. Those those agreements help us leverage our own R&D resources mm. to get, um, you know, independent verification of our results as well as their own, as well as, you know, get more of that work done. Mm. Um, so that's working well. So Thomas looks after that, you know, and – uh, he worked closely in the R&D uh, with Greg and others in the organisation to to come up to speed over several years. Mm. He was with us for a good uh, three years before, you know, Greg actually pulled pulled the pin and said, right, mm. things are in, in place, so I want to leave. Yeah. Yep, it's happy. Um, so I've got probably one final question, which is more on the um, technology division and the, the licensing once again, is that's a really exciting point of the business financially. Mm-hmm. Um when it comes to the year, like expanding, particularly in North America, what would you say as a business right now is the bottleneck in unlocking that growth? Um, you know, I, could, I was fortunate I could see that machines coming together out there. Um, we talked about resourcing earlier on and how apprentices are really important, like right through the business. Like there are things that obviously as a business owner and a, and a manager, things can always get a bit, you know, they can always be improved, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. And so there's always these small bottlenecks in the business. Yeah. How do you think about unlocking that potential? Okay. Um, well, there, there's a couple of things, right? One, one is firstly delivering the equipment and the know-how to the people. So we have had some issues with our uh, recent, more recent technology sales um, we were going to deliver in FY22 uh, with, with components that were, uh, were promised Delivered within the time frame that they they we expected, and then they, they kept our suppliers kept pushing them out. We can't get the components. We can't get the components. Right? So ultimately, that meant that some equipment couldn't be delivered last financial year that should have been delivered. Um, so that's been one issue. That's COVID induced. You know. Yep. Supply chains. Supply chain issues. Right. And yeah. um, and you know, whilst. Uh, and we couldn't foresee it because they were promising, oh, yeah, well, you'll have that in February, right? Yeah. Components in February. Oh, no, it's not arriving till April. Uh, oh, no, it's going to be August. Uh, okay. <laughs> this, is, this is the stuff that happened. Yep. Right? Nothing we could do. That was one constraint. And obviously, uh, you know, in a – well, one thing that's happening, you know, in Australia is also skill shortages, right? Yeah. So we have um, struggled to get uh, – um, automation programmers and you know which is necessary for that but um, we're overcoming that right? mm-hmm. so we, we're recruiting those so that has been a constraint 
about the future, okay, the other the other issue is about the um, developing those customers um, mm. for our technology. For sure. Uh, they need to not only be witness what we can supply them but to, but to see value in that and that takes time. Mm. It takes, you know, so um, we've got some very strong interest. Uh, you know, we had um, two people in, in India recently, uh, our international sales um, and we were at an expo, a couple of expositions over there, and we've got some very strong interest from potential partners in mm. in India. We're going through now a, a, a proving process. They're sending some components for us to actually reclaim, and we're putting together the economics for them, so building the business, helping them build their business case yeah. in India. Uh, we've also got strong uh, interest in uh, South America, um, Peru, Chile, and Brazil. Um, they've just come back literally this week from being spending two weeks, sorry, three weeks in, in um, South America, again with some very strong interest. Some of these uh, potential partners are coming, planning to come out here in, at the end of November, mm. right? So um, it's about the, that business development yep. um, along with that. So, um, you know, our, our plans are actually to, to have – at least two new technology sales um, you know, over the next next couple of years, right? mm-hmm. um, and that's sort of factored into our targets that we've announced for FY twenty five. Yeah, it's part of it, as well as you know the the organic growth of the business and um, and domestic expansion. Mm. You know? Yeah, I think that's um, and this is what I was saying to you earlier on is that uh, I do like businesses that have multiple ways of winning. Um, like you said, they take time, mm. and you express that through the the components for the for the machines, right? Mm-hmm. These these things happen, and this is a, a business, and mm. you know it's not always it's not linear. Yeah, you know, these, these to get to A to B, it tends to go mm. all over the place. But Wayne, um, I really do appreciate you taking the time to show us through today. I know you don't get that uh, that many investors coming through and actually seeing it in person. Um, if you are a shareholder and um, the AGMs, like I'm, I'm sure there's like uh, plenty of people out there who would love to uh, reach out and get in touch. But um, I think you're going to have a little bit more interest after after this. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, it'd be fantastic. So um, yeah, thank you for taking the time to join me and, and walk me through the business. It's been been my pleasure. You know, thank you very much for your interest in Laserbond, and you know, it's it's fantastic. And you know, to be honest, I I love showing. Potential yeah, shareholders or shareholders through the business. It's, you know, we're very, and for that matter, you know, everyone here does as well. We're very proud of what we do and, and it's great to show people. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Business Podcast. I think this series is best served with my free business course on RASC education. My free course includes all of my notes, templates, employment guides, legal documents, marketing strategies, software recommendation, and ideas for starting and running a small business. If you're a small business owner or an expert like an accountant, lawyer, investor, or entrepreneur, I want to hear from you. I'm not 100% sure what we're going to do with this podcast series, so I'm looking for sponsors as well as potential co-hosts, and of course, I'm eager to invest in businesses run by talented people. If you're looking for a supporter or advisor, a silent partner, or even an investor to support your growth, I can help. Please contact me via the Rask website. Finally, if this podcast or the course helps you, I only ask that you please help me by sharing it with one friend, colleague, or family member who runs a business. Thanks for listening.